The year is 1916, and get ready for Musketeers, Mountain Girls, and Mayhem. The movie? Intolerance. Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where every week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Uh, today we are talking about D.W. Griffith's second most famous film, uh, Intolerance. But before we get into that, we're going to look back on last week's episode which was, of course, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Now, you know, Amy, I've even forgotten a little bit about Yankee Doodle Dandy because we also just did our third live unspooled show on Monday on YouTube, which is still up. It's still streaming. We got to do a house party, hashtag stay home house party, uh, where we got to talk to some of the uh, people behind house party and celebrate the 30th anniversary of this great film. These have been so much fun to do. Uh, we've done House Party, Clueless, and Big. You can see them all on uh, the Earwolf YouTube page. They're all up there uh, for you. And I would urge you, if you've, you've not listened, you could just, you don't even have to even watch us. Just turn up the volume and walk away from your computer. It's fine. It'd be just like the <laughs> podcast. Uh, and now that we are safely away from it, I can say, I was so nervous. Kid from Kid and Play is one of my favorite performers of all time. Ah, it was so cool of him to come by. I am so, so excited. And you know what? And I hope uh, we raised some money uh, that night and we are kind of continuing to raise money uh, for this amazing organization that uh, the Criterion Channel is backing. It's a GoFundMe for independent theater chains. Um, and we're doing that in a way uh, by um, selling a T-shirt. So you can basically uh, buy a T-shirt and that money that you spend on a T-shirt is going to help Art House America. Um, and you can go get our T-shirt at tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled. It's a kind of a play on a rear window shirt. So every dollar that we make is going to Art House America um, and we are selling them. And it's exciting to see that people are out there buying them and post your pictures and we'll repost them and do all that sort of stuff. Um, Very much. And if you know, if you're in that zone where you're like, I only wear one shirt every day. That's where I'm at in my quarantine state. That's okay. You can get it on a mug. You can keep. You can oh, get it on a yeah. sticker. You can do lots of stuff. We can really embrace it any which way we want. Um, but now, Amy, let's go back in time to talk about Yankee Doodle Dandy. It felt like such a long time ago. And hear what people had to say about this film. Well, yeah. I mean, we were like, you know, we don't need this on the list. And the Unspooled group agreed. You know, people were like, I don't think Yankee Doodle needs to be on the next version of this list. It can go. It can go. I mean, some people did really stick up for it, which I appreciate. You know, Johnny Pomato said, I absolutely love Yankee Doodle Dandy. I understand this is a personal affection and I probably wouldn't vote to have it on some grand historical AFI list, but it is easily one of my favorite movies of all time. To me, says Johnny, it is the ultimate barely factual biopic. Of course, so much of this portrayal of Cohen's life is utter nonsense, but it is a spectacular telling of an imagined version of his life. And then here he goes, and um, Johnny describes some of Jimmy Cagney dancing, which I just love. I'm going to read this because I love Jimmy Cagney dancing, and I love how Johnny describes it. He says, Cagney has pure magic in this film. I can never get over how his body moves. It's like he's a marionette. His limbs look like they're weightless and being controlled by some unseen force. Yes, yes. I think that is a great way of putting it. Yeah, and you know, Wickham Clayton has a very different point of view. 
because there are parts of this movie that are charming and watchable and the musical numbers are huge and impressive. However, I'm struggling to get over the fact this is fundamentally American propaganda at uh, in its most ham-fisted and hackney uh, sort of way uh, with more money than other countries could feed into their entire wartime propaganda. I would drop this movie off in a minute, but if we need a musical biopic, I would vote for Coal Miner's Daughter any day of the week. Ooh, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. I like that. And then and I think that started a really valuable conversation about like what is propaganda, you know? And Pascale Romo wrote in, you know, I actually struggle with categorizing this as propaganda. I would like to hear people's specific thoughts on why they think it is because this felt more celebratory. You know, propaganda implies bias or misleading information, but I didn't see much of that in the film apart from exaggerating Cohan's personal story. I think that is a fair line. Yeah. I do too. I think, you know, propaganda is probably a term that gets thrown around a lot because it puts us on an even playing field. We get it. Like it's, this is a whitewashed. I would say this movie is more whitewashed than propaganda, if that makes sense. You know, it's a very like black and white. We get it. Good, bad. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. There's no real, um, there's no real tension or, or drama. It's a sort of, it's, that's what I think uh, people probably are relating to. It's like, yeah, you know, America's great and our soldiers are amazing, which is, you know, I, I love our soldiers. I have nothing to say about that, but it's sort of the idea that the, you know, it's like, there's just no downside to anything, you know? And I think that that's what people are reacting to. Maybe whitewash is a better term, but let's get into a question that you brought up last week, which was, um, what movie set would be great for a mall? Uh, we talked about this, that Intolerance, the Babylonian set, is actually the design or the inspiration for Hollywood and Highland, which is a complex out here in L.A. that is um, it's where the Academy Awards Theater is, but it's also a big, giant mall. It's, there's a Skechers there. So we wanted to know what your favorite movie could be also a mall. Am I saying that right? I don't yeah. know. You get the yeah. premise of it. In the spirit of big, expensive, controversial, and underrated movies, I would like to see a Waterworld mall. It would obviously be Willy Wonka's candy garden. You can eat everything and anything, and you can sing. Hi. The movie that I would love to see turned into a mall is um, Beetlejuice's House. My dream shopping experience would have Beetlejuice sets everywhere, which I just realized probably means it's a mall full of Hot Topic and nothing else, and I'm okay with that. Hi. I think the Grand Budapest Hotel would be an excellent setting for a mall. I would love to be in a mall, and all of a sudden I turn a corner, and everything's in black and white, and there are big signs that they consume and buy, like, and they live. Ooh, Amy, which ones do you, do you like? I like a lot of these. Well, what's funny is like Hollywood and Highland actually has that really elaborate candy store that does feel like Willy Wonka. There is that mm. tiny, you know, the one that's up by the Chinese theater on the upstairs floor. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but I, I wonder what came first. Those can't, I mean, well, I know what came first. Willy Wonka came first. And I think all these stores made themselves like Willy Wonka. So maybe you're right. I mean, I guess that's the way everything works. I, I don't know. Yeah. I like the, I like that they live. I like that they live version of this. I think that that's a very like, aggressive like very repo man punk rock way to look at the world well grand budapest hotel is my favorite wes anderson film so wow really 
Yeah, so to walk through something like that, I mean, it feels a little bit like some of the malls I've been in in strange corners of the planet. They can be incredibly elaborate, so yes. Yeah, I love it. Um, well, that was awesome. And uh, Amy, we have a we have a, a big movie to get into. It's um, the oldest film on the list. Let's um, talk about D.W. Griffith's follow-up to Birth of a Nation, Intolerance. And you know what they say, unspool it. Nobody says that. <laughs> It's 1916. The U.S. life expectancy is 49.6 years for males and 54.3 years for females. The Saturday Evening Post published Norman Rockwell's first cover, Mother's Day Off. The last U.S. stagecoach robbery took place in December. The perpetrator left behind a bloody palm print, which became the first usage of print evidence in court. Only 6% of Americans graduated high school. Monet painted his Water Lily series, and Einstein completed his formulation of a general theory of relativity. The hot movies included 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Mutiny and the Bounty, and today's topic, Intolerance. It comes in at number 49 on the AFI's Top 100 list in 2007 and was unrepresented in the 1998 AFI list. Since this film is completely silent, um, there isn't really a scene we can play, but maybe just uh, how about a listen to some of the music that accompanies it. Okay, Amy, I know this is a tall order, but who's in this movie and what is it about? Okay. (laughs) Intolerance is an ambitious movie that stretches over several millennia. It takes place in four different time periods. I'll start with the furthest back and just kind of give a brief mention of each. I'm sure we'll we'll get into each one later in more depth. Um, The furthest back one is ancient Babylonia, when it is conquered by a Persian king. Then you have uh, biblical Judea, the story of Jesus. Then you have the French Renaissance, in which um, there's a massive fight between the Catholics and the Huguenots. And then you have the American modern story that takes place around 1916, which is all about do-gooders and busybodies and people who are trying to fight for moral justice, but actually ruining the lives of the poor people around them. And it stars (laughs) pretty much every major silent film actor at the time. A lot of them, the most of them. I mean, this is like a major who's who. You got Mae Marsh, you got Lillian Gish, you got um, Eugene Pallet, you got everybody. You got everybody in here, Miriam Cooper. It is massive. But above all, the biggest name that you see five times alone on the opening credit page, five times alone, is D.W. Griffith. He's the reason why this is on the list. Um, He's the reason why this has jumped onto the list because his last film, Birth of a Nation, the film that he did right before this was taken off. That was on the 97 list, taken off for a lot of very good reasons and Intolerance put on instead, which was his follow-up to Birth of a Nation. You know, I thought maybe at the top of this episode, I would uh, phone a friend and have him come in and say like something really positive about Intolerance to kind of set the tone because I know that this is a harder film for people to sit down and decide to watch. Mm -hmm. So I thought... um, who better to bring in to say something than our number one guy on the AFI list, Orson Welles? Ooh. Because the film you're going to see tonight deserves all the credit that can possibly be given to it. It was made just a year after I was born. 
and there is almost nothing in the entire vocabulary of the cinema which you won't find in this film. There's also a lot of it which is terribly old-fashioned. And it was old-fashioned, I'd like to point out, even at the time when this film was shown. Because its author, and its author and maker and creator was D.W. Griffith, and I may say parenthetically that the film is intolerance, had his uh, grounding came out of and in every way was the child of the 19th century, the late 19th century theater. So you're going to see a lot of the late 19th century theater in this film. A lot that was old and dusty even at the moment that this was made. And you're also going to see an awful lot that would be new tomorrow because of the genius of the man his taste and his culture, his background, belong to quite another time. Well, it's interesting because it does seem like these two films are in conversation. And I don't want to unpack Birth of a Nation right now just because I think we have limited time, but it seems to me there's like a bit of horse trading. Like, we can't have Birth of a Nation on the list. We need to represent him on the list. So we're going to put this on the list. And I would argue that in the cultural lexicon, you don't really hear that much about intolerance. And then you hear a lot about Birth of a Nation, but not necessarily about its filmmaking, more about what it's saying about culture. So it, it's a it's an interesting thing. It, it, it feels to me like this is a tip of the hat to him as a director. And he is an amazing director, but it also feels like we can't have that. So we're going to put this on. And from a filmmaking perspective, while really like impressive, I mean, incredibly impressive, I don't know how I feel about it as a as a film. I mean, that, but we'll get into it. Like I, you know, it it, it seems uh, unwieldy at certain points. I mean, it, it it's very big. It's a massive movie. Two hours and forty seven minutes is the cut that's out there that I watched. But the his original cut, I think, was as much as eight hours. This was a long wow. movie. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's almost impossible to talk about intolerance without talking about Birth of a Nation. You really can't. Because even the title Intolerance, he picked it out because he was mad at people who were mad at Birth of a Nation. That's yes. a lot of why he made this entire movie. And you know, I, I don't know if this is still the case in film school, but it was when I was in film school, you watched Birth of a Nation, you know, which Same was for me. Yeah. his big epic story about um, post-Civil War, uh, the South, the South falling apart, and it can only be saved in this movie's eye by the rise of the Klan. And it's an incredibly, incredibly racist movie. And when I, when I was in film school, we at least, we watched it with a big, like, you know, preface about how racist this movie is that we're about to see. And then uh, it, was, it was kind of excused or wrapped into the conversation by saying, however, this is D.W. Griffith. This is the first major epic that had close-ups that had this kind of intercut action. Like this is where film language came from is birth of a nation. So you should watch it and recognize it for all of that, that it gave us. And then so, yeah, I think that horse trading was definitely like, well, we can't have that. So let's have intolerance, which does everything birth of a nation does, but better without the racism. Right. However, the, the caveat is that kind of none of that is exactly true. You know, to be honest, like DW Griffith is more like the master of his own publicity. And he was like, mm -hmm. I invented the close-up, which is not true at all. 
And he was like, I invented this type of like amazing, amazing editing. But it was more like kind of borrowed from Italian films that he thought were amazing. But he yeah. took a lot of the credit for it. And so we do. He deserves a lot of credit because he did do it great. And he did do it masterfully. And he did in films like Intolerance, you know, really create the American blockbuster. Exactly. I think that he popularized things that other people had experimented with. You know, um, no one was really exploiting these techniques. And he did it on such a grand uh, scale, you know, so much so that he put $2 million of his own money into this movie. It never made it back. I mean, this film was not really a hit. I mean, they even uh, cut this film into two separate features called like The Fall of Babylon and The Mother and the Law, and it still didn't make money. So this is like, you know, it it seems like a spite movie to me in a way, because it is sort of like, all right, you know what? You all came after me. You said Birth of a Nation was racist. And you know what? You're intolerant of other people's views. And it's very much like, I mean, right now, as I'm looking at it, like what Twitter culture is like, you you uh, you don't get it. And now you're, you know, I'm going to show you how uh, wrong you are, you know, and it's and and I do think there are some really interesting things in this film. I think there are really cool portrayals of women. And then I think there's terrible portrayals of women, like kind of side by side, like you have one woman who is just amazing warrior fighting, you know, uh, in Babylon, just kicking ass. And then on the other side, you have a woman who basically a title card comes up and says, uh, no men find her attractive. So she's going to go out and make other women's lives terrible. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but like, you're like, wow. Okay. So we really are showing like two very weird points of view. I mean, I think it is absolutely fair to compare D.W. Griffith to Twitter culture because, honestly, he's a bit of a troll. If I if I could just say yeah. that about a guy who I think is also a master filmmaker. Here's why I say that. I mean, as you point out, Birth of a Nation, when it comes out the year before Intolerance, it's hugely problematic at the time. You know, like modern culture did not discover that this was an incredibly racist incendiary film. Um, it was protested. In fact, I, I pulled actually a clip of film historian Donald Bogle talking about the protests when this film came out. I'll let him have this word. Right away within the African-American community and, and within a segment of the liberal white community, uh, it was realized that um, the power of film as propaganda and the NAACP um, was opposed to this film and, and spoke out against it. Liberal groups did as well. And so we can see film history, Hollywood history in a sense, starting off in this way with these racist images. And those images will continue in years and in decades to come. And here's the thing, like D.W. Griffith was really mad at that reaction, that people were protesting, that he had to spend a lot of extra money um, hiring police officers to make sure that there were no riots whenever he screened Birth of a Nation. He felt like the country was oppressing his freedom to put this movie out there. However, I call him a troll because he wanted that reaction. You know, like D.W. Griffith, before he made Birth of a Nation, he made hundreds and hundreds of short silent films. He was out here in L.A. visiting and shooting movies as early as 1910 wow. and uh, with Mary Pickford. And so... um he would make films before Birth of a Nation that were anti-Klan. Like he was not he was not a guy who was particularly pro-Klan. If you ever asked him, he's like, oh, of course I don't like the Klan. He made a lot of anti-Klan films. He made a lot of films about white racist people and how they should not be mean to Native Americans. And yet he also chooses to make Birth of a Nation because the book and the play that it was based on 
was protested widely and was a huge flashpoint in culture before he even made his film. And he thought, you know what? I want to make my first epic. I want to get a lot of attention and eyeballs on it. I'm going to pick this trolling film. I'm going to make a film that risks and then did like have the Klan become a resurgent force in American history because I think it gets me attention. That's absolutely a trolling, selfish, horrible act. Absolutely. And then, you know, he's so upset about people being mad at him and blaming him for things like the Klan resurging and for, you know, a a thousand horrible things going wrong that he starts like being like, you, you censors. And he writes a public, he does a pamphlet about how much he hates censorship. And then he makes intolerance, which he says is about people who are do-gooders, who are hypocritical, meddling, busybodies, who are trying to destroy the freedom. And that, to me, feels like the story that he really wanted to tell, which was that story about how people meddle in other people's business. You know, they're seeing the baby and the mother drinking alcohol. And that, to me, seemed like the response film. But then, from my research, it seemed like, oh, I need to make this bigger. So he started adding more pieces to it. But you can tell that that centerpiece is his beef. Like, that that really is his, you know, giving the finger to... You know, what we just heard, you know, this more liberal people of the time, like, you know, you're so invested and you're so trying to help everybody else, but help yourself because you're not seeing what's actually happening. Uh, It's amazing that we're still dealing with the exact same issues, uh, you know, of that kind of. Exactly. I mean, his reaction here, it's exactly like when, you know, somebody says something dumb and ignorant and then Twitter piles on them and then they double down by becoming deliberately hateful and ignorant. Like you pushed me over here. You guys made me believe in this stuff. I mean, it's that argument you always see, like, don't be mean to people who support a lot of the policies in our government right now, because they're just going to get mad about it. It, But yet that's what D.W. Griffith did. Well, and it also seems to me like he's trying to stoke a flame and he gets caught on this movie because he was forced to reshoot the sequence of the crucifixion because certain organizations said that he shot too many Jewish extras around the cross and not enough Romans. And I wonder if at that point was he, again, just uh, playing with it, then someone caught him and he took that footage, he burned it, and then he reshot the scene with more Roman extras. But like he's taking other people's filmmaking styles, making them his own. He's also taking ideas that he knows are going to be controversial to help promote him. Like, there is an element of an evil P.T. Barnum here. Like, you know, it's a real showman. Like, come and see and 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 see it because you're going to get angry at it. And there's a part of me that I really, like, saw that in. And tell me if, if I'm totally wrong, that every one of his title cards had, like, the the DG on it. Like, like it was, like, a personally stamped, like, these are D.W. Griffith title cards. They're just not regular title cards. They were stamped. And I thought that was such a bizarre, and not for the entire movie, but for some of it, I thought that was like a bizarre thing to be like, yeah, yeah, we know we're watching a DW Griffith film. Like you have to stamp each title card, not like the front of the movie, like literally the cards that are going up to explain what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to remember what it looks like from the top of my head, but that very first title card, even it's like DW Griffith here, Griffith Productions here, DW in the in the corners. I think it really was five times in one screen. This is a DW Griffith film. And then, therefore, it does make sense that we think of him as the father of modern American gigantic cinema telling. You know? Yeah. It, it's hard to argue that he wasn't, honestly. It's really no. hard to argue that he wasn't. Fun fact about the title cards, by the way. Do you know who helped write them? 
Because it is two pretty important people. No, who? Dun, 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 dun. Uh, one of them is Anita Luz. She's the screenwriter who came into Hollywood like 20, 21, 22, wrote some of the best screenplays, including Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, a movie I deeply love. She's here working on this film. And also Todd Browning, the guy who makes Freaks, is here on the set of Intolerance oh, helping wow. make this film. Yeah, wild. This, I mean, this film is almost a breeding ground of talent for who's going to go on and create special, wonderful things. And it's really interesting about this idea of a blockbuster film. You know, before uh, this movie, Birth of the Nation was the record holder for most expensive picture ever, right? And now in this film, that Babylonian orgy sequence cost $200,000 when it was shot. And that's twice the budget of Birth of a Nation. You know, this movie I said before that like he put $2 million of his own uh, money in. This movie was... $8.5 million, which is the equivalent right now of $201 million. I mean, he is making a spectacle. And if we put our feelings about him a little bit on the side, it will be interesting to talk about this film because this film is, it is wildly stunning. Like it is, uh, I think it's unwieldy, but it's also just like, wow, I can't believe how in many respects modern it feels and the scope is so large it it, is kind of mind-blowing that this this is able to be made in my opinion no i agree and honestly watching this film again i got kind of retroactively mad at my film school because i was like why did we even watch birth of a nation to be honest Mm -hmm. because intolerance is so much bigger so much better so much more dynamic so much more absolutely jaw-dropping in terms of what he's able to accomplish. Like, I just, I mean, so many of my notes as I was watching this were just like, how the, how the blah, 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 a thousand curse words did this get made? This is no. crazy. Here's a, you there's forget- a bear eating food. There's someone petting a tiger. There's people with like stop motion decapitations. It's incredible. Oh, it's, it's an incredibly gory film. And if my memory serves correct, I mean, Birth of a Nation is pretty violent too, but like you see full on stabbings in this film. And, um, and, I was surprised at that, like, I think the thing about this movie that is hard to parse for me is I'm so used to modern day filmmaking. I'm so used to seeing a Michael Bay movie or a Chris Hemsworth extraction film that, you know, when you see these large scale things, they're just, like, oh yeah, I've seen Avengers Endgame. I get it. But then to go, wait a second, this is 1920. This is a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, like. Like to be in that theater and see this, I mean, no, I, like, you would have never seen anything like this, nothing. And and arguably, you don't see anything like it for what, like, at least another twenty years, right? I mean, on this scale, like, this pack. I mean, this is like a everything is in there. You know, it's just like this is a you know, uh, this is a this is a movie that is the cross cutting and. All these little techniques, it actually, in many respects, reminded me a lot of Star Wars, if that makes sense to me. Like, it had the feel, and I, I actually see, like, where uh, Lucas was kind of stealing from the old serials, and I think that serials and silent films go hand in hand, but the fade-out, you know, the circular fade-outs, the cross-cutting between multiple uh, battle sequences, like, at the end, when there's, like, three different battle sequences going on, like, like this is Star Wars. Like, Star Wars lifted... This in scope and size, 
not in content, obviously, but I, I, I saw so many similarities there between that and, and those two films. No, yeah. And actually, of all the things that D.W. Griffith has taken credit for inventing, I mean, like the tracking shot, the flashback, the close up, the fade out, the cross cut. He actually, I think, did legitimately invent the fade out. And so that is a thousand percent straight from his brain. Yes. And, but you, you know, know what else he invented? Huh? That you forgot the most important thing he invented. What? False what? eyelashes. <laughs> Lillian Gish said that he invented false eyelashes for this movie. Um, and he wanted uh, lashes luxurious enough to brush her cheeks when she blinked. Um, so he apparently, uh, you know, other false eyelashes were out there, but he invented this kind. So I think the fade out and false eyelashes is where this guy, where he can live. <laughs> you know what? Maybe that's a good moment for me to uh, fade out this conversation momentarily into an interview with uh, one of the actresses who was in this movie. Um, this is Blanche Sweet. She plays the bride in the uh, Judea section. And this is her talking about you know, working with somebody like Griffith. You know, there are great things that happen in the world you're not impressed by right away. It, it takes a while to find out the value of them. And I didn't realize the value, any value, about motion pictures until about a year um, two years until we until I started to work for him uh, in California and then suddenly it came over me that this man I was working for was very good and what he was doing was very good and there's this idea you know because up until this moment film was not taken that seriously as an art form for audiences I mean middle-class audiences weren't really even going to the movie theater until D.W. Griffith started making giant films yeah, that's yeah. when really it was like this breakthrough. Like it was the first must-see movie that everybody had to go see. Everybody went to go see Birth of a Nation. Everybody talked about it and had strong opinions about it and fought about it. And that was really this turning point for movies because they'd been considered this low-class art form in the first like 10, 15 years of their existence. Like if you were too poor for the theater, if you then your one entertainment was maybe you'd go watch a 10-minute short that D.W. Griffith might have made with Mary Pickford before people even knew Mary Pickford's name. You know, it, it was anonymous and little and small. Let me ask you this. Do you think that this film suffers from, because here's what I want to say. This film does not suffer from scope, size, direction, acting. This film is pretty fantastic when it comes to all of those things. Um, but I think the film suffers, and I want to see if you thought this, from being too dense, from trying to be too smart. because. The title cards, to me, um, took me out of it or confused. I'm like, I'm trying to get so much information into my head. And I found that if I just kind of started to eliminate some of those cards and try to get all the facts and I was able to wrap my head around it a little bit more, I think they, he tried to almost elevate too much of it, like uh, in, especially in the Babylonian section. And uh, there was just like, I was like, oh, okay, I have to remember this and that and this. It was a lot of information coming at you very quickly. And it felt yeah. like it got dense. Yeah. Because unlike, you know, the Chaplin and the Keaton films we've been looking at, in this film, he is trying to give historical information. He's trying right. to prove that he was a big researcher. I mean, he was. D.W. Griffith loved research. He was a huge nerd for research. That's part of why I think he got offended by Birth of a Nation. He had this kind of weird segmented brain where he was like, how can you say I made a bad movie? I completely reenacted perfectly the theater where Abraham Lincoln was shot. And he was right. like, 
He like could not understand the distinction between the two things. He's like, but the theater is perfect. I, I researched it and it's perfect. It's not a bad movie, therefore. And so right. It's so like I did it right. So it can't be it can't not be entertaining because it's right. It is like <laughs> and that I think is the hardest thing. Any artist feels like, but if I did, I followed all the rules, right? And you can say that for a majority of horror films. Uh I did A and B and C, and one movie makes you know, $150 million and the other one makes 12 million, you know, it's like, but what's different about them? And it's that little piece of magic, uh, you know, that, that is, you know, it doesn't make a difference about the script. It's, it's, it's kind of this alchemy that's created. And, uh, yeah, you just can't, you can't make art by going like, but it is exactly this, you know, oftentimes the stuff that we love the most makes no fucking sense. You know, I mean, when you when you really drill into it, like it makes like, you know, there are there are buy ins that you have to make. Exactly. But you sense in here him trying to prove it to be like, OK, I know about Catherine de Medici. I've researched this. Y'all got to trust me on this. Yeah. Here it is. Here's everything. I mean, I admire the opening title cards where he starts explaining what he's even doing with this story. I mean, yes. this movie has the incredible subplot or subtitle, I should say, of love struggle through the ages in a prologue in two acts. And then he says, you know, this is going to be a play, four separate stories, different periods of history, each with its own characters. But it's about how hatred and tolerance have battled against love and and charity. And I want you to watch how we're going to be switching from one story to each other in search of a a common theme. And in that, he's basically explaining what editing is. You know, he's like, yes, I'm we're searching for a theme in all of these stories. Y'all can catch up. I mean, imagine we still like blink a little bit and we're like, wow. Babble, you know, crap. Yeah. Movies with multi multiple stories. Oh dear, it's a lot to handle. 1916. 1916. And he's putting this on audiences. The audacity makes me respect this film, to be honest. Yeah, it really is like a impressive, impressive feat. And I think where it elevates, you know, I've had this battle with silent films as we've gone through this list, you know, some that I just love and um and others that I'm like, okay, it's fine. But this one is engaging on a level that it just, it brings you in. And I think the use of close-ups and then the explosion of scope, it, it's, and then the just juxtaposition of timeframes and images, you know, everything is working at you that it's keeping you riveted. Uh, it's a tough movie. I know a lot of people uh, texted me over the weekend as like, I've watched every movie for Unspooled and this was the hardest one to watch. And I, I feel that too. It's this weird balance. I can't wrestle with it where it's like, I appreciate everything I saw. Um, and I appreciate like what he was trying to do, but I didn't often feel, uh, completely invested. Maybe, you know, I think he accomplishes his theme, but I don't think he necessarily accomplished the theme of like making me care. Really? Oh, I don't know that uh, cross cutting right. last half hour. Where it's like, oh no, this guy's about to be hung. And oh yes, no, Babylon that is, great. is falling. And there's the train chase. And oh, there's a thousand things happening. The the the, the horse racing in front of like in front of the Persian army. I that, mean, no, I ugh. I think I think I really like sections of it. You're right. Like that last half hour is amazing. I really connected to the uh, the storyline, like the um the mother storyline. I thought was really great. That kind of held my attention the whole way through. I thought the battle sequence in Babylonia was amazing. Like there were moments, I just feel like it was like a lot to get to those moments. It was like a lot of 
I'm sifting, I'm wading through this, and then, whoa, I'm really in. Uh, but maybe maybe that's just me. And I, again, it's my battle of silent film. Maybe if I was in a theater, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of movies. I mean, maybe we should start getting into it just by talking about it segment at a time. Okay, like, sure. What if we start just by talking about the 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 biblical story because I feel like that's the one he gives the least amount of time. Yes, he's like y'all know this. I just have mm-hmm. to kind of bring it in. It's there. There you go. We got it. We can move on. It's Jesus. And it's so funny. It's like in a in a way. Why do we need to do this? But I guess that underscores his whole point that you know here's somebody who has a different point of view and he was you know the the best person and and yet you crucified him and and I think he's aligning himself and this is kind of really interesting to me like who he is because he is he is all the people that have been wrong you know i think from a director standpoint that's what he's connecting to so he's saying like i i'm jesus i i understand this i brought something different to you guys and you guys reacted really negatively well yeah and his framing of jesus i think is really interesting the stories that he chooses to pick cuz he doesn't pick that many you know he right. picks the one of the woman um, who's about to be stoned for adultery and he comes in. He looks like he wakes up from a, ha- a hangover. This Jesus, he's like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> like, he who has not sinned cast the first stone and everybody's like, whoa. But think about what David Griffith is doing by picking that story. He's picking one where Jesus is like, y'all don't judge me. You know, like, yeah. I'm going to stick up for sinners. He picks a Jesus sticking up for people who have made mistakes. Kind of, the, you know? And he's like, none of you, none of y'all get to judge me. And then the other one that he picks, I think, is so funny because, you know, here in the teens, we're really so close now to prohibition kicking in to, you know, the country getting super stern and, and strict and teetotaling. It's happening. It's in the air. Everybody knows it's coming. And he picks Jesus being like, oh, your, your, your wedding's out of wine. I got this. He just picks Jesus making right. wine. That's his other favorite one. Jesus makes wine. Jesus is a party guy. Jesus is like, we drink, man. Drinking's yeah, cool. I, I love that. By the way, do you know who played, do you know the actor who played uh, Jesus? Do you know his name? Uh, Howard Gay. Okay, well, not many people would know his name because uh, his name was removed from all the prints of the film. What? Simply because, yeah, um, he was involved in a sex scandal <gasps> involving a 14-year-old girl and was deported back to England. Um, right before the film came out. So his name was removed from all the prints. Um, Jesus. Which, and you could, you could, I, in that moment, I sympathized for D.W. Griffith and the fact that, like, I'm trying to release this movie. I've reshot the, the crucifixion scene because it looked like there were too many uh, Jewish actors there. I'm trying to make sure this is not upsetting anybody, but I'm also trying to prove a point. And it's like, oh, and by the way, the guy who's playing Jesus, uh, he had sex with a 14 year old. Like, oh, no, ah! come on, get this out of here. <laughs> don't uh, tell him about Chaplin. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, you know what was happening here in LA at the same time, right? Like you, the Hollywood Bowl. You know, you've been, to, of course. Yes. If you've been course. to LA, you've probably been to the Hollywood Bowl. It's our amazing amphitheater. The, Saw ET the, there. Yeah, the huge running show at the Hollywood Bowl in the, in the teens was the Passion Play. They're like almost oh, wow. every night they were doing a huge Jesus story there all the time. It was like this massive draw. I'm kind of surprised they didn't get that Jesus. You know, like L.A. had a super famous Jesus. He was too busy. I mean, look, you you make uh, you make more money doing the passion play every night for a live audience than you ever would uh, shoot in a movie like this. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. But even you saying that the passion play is something that is playing every night at the Hollywood Bowl makes me go, why is it in this movie? Like, 
to me, it just feels like, all right, I've seen this a million times. And I guess maybe the scope and he's the first person. And I have to always get over that hump of <sighs> what I know as a human being who's lived on this planet and have seen this a million times versus how people saw this in the 1920s. So, you know, for me, it felt like, oh, this is the least interesting because it's the most known. And yet you're giving it like the most, not short shrift, but you're just kind of like, it sort of seems like a tacked on thing. It, like, it seems like a, a drunk guy in an argument being like, and then, and it's like, oh, we're adding that into it. And then that too, and that too. And you're like, oh, okay, sure. And that's how I kind of felt about that that sequence of all the, of all of them, this is the one I was least interested in. Yeah. It feels to me like, I mean, let's, to put it frankly, like you can't argue with Jesus, right? Right. If people are mad at you and then you make a film where you're on the side of Jesus as your next film, you're like, you're protected in a way. You're like, I'm on the side of Jesus. And like, look, I like this guy over here. And I think it also was a canny move, if not like a, a narratively satisfying move, because this is a movie that is otherwise pretty down on religion. Honestly, like a lot of the people who do wrong in this film or who cause wrongs to exist are speaking a different face. And he makes the point of sharing the wealth. Like there is no good religion in here, really. You know, pretty much every religious person who's become entrenched in a culture, has become powerful from it, has money from it, who has something they don't want to lose that's important to them, will do evil based on the name of their religion in this movie. So for a film that I think is hostile a lot of the time toward the faithful, it, it makes sense to be like, but I like this guy. You know, this guy's all right. Yeah, we're fine. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. Um, I think a lot of people love telling the story of Jesus and then subverting the story of Jesus. I mean, whether you tell it exactly as brutal as it would have been, like Mel Gibson did, or you subvert it by doing it like the way that Scorsese did. Like, it's this interesting story that everyone knows. So it's like, what's my take on it? And I think that uh, to your point, like he picks these interesting moments. Like These are the moments. These are the moments that stick out to me that are the most flashy. Or, you know, if I had to distill it to four beats, here are the four beats, you know? Yeah, he doesn't pick lepers like Ben-Hur though. He's like, no lepers, lepers doesn't prove my point. We're drinking wine tonight, man. I just I dig that about him. I don't know. I I I I, I appreciate yeah. the Jesus that he puts forward in this movie. I I um, mean, look, I yeah, I do too. But so then let's talk about the one that gets slightly more screen time, the French one. Okay. Yes. Okay. So this is a story that takes place in 1572, and it is about the Saint Barth- Bartholomew massacre when you know the King of France um, gave in to pressure from the Queen Mother uh, Catherine de Medici to murder a lot of, and I hope I'm saying this right, Huguenots, 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 Huguenots. Huguenots. But yeah, so it's about the murder of just a huge swath of the city's um, Protestant Huguenot population by the Catholics. And it's a story, I think, about people who are so fearful of the other that they do evil. Because what you keep seeing, like the Catherine de' Medici character say, is like, if we don't kill them, they're going to kill us. If we don't kill them, they're going to kill us. And it doesn't seem like they're going to kill them. So maybe she's lying or deluding herself. But she's impassioned about this. And there's this huge, like, angry scene where she's, you know, yelling at this king who seems kind of like just a layabout, naive hipster dude who's like gnashing his teeth and ripping his hair and doing a lot of big old classic silent film acting because he doesn't want to have to kill all the Huguenots. But she's like, you're going to have to kill the Huguenots. And then he finally gives in. And when he gives in, he says what I think is, is maybe the most chilling line in the entire film. After he like stomps and tears his hair and he's finally talked into it, he says, 
kill them all, not one escape to upbraid me. He's basically like, well, if we're going to do this, I don't want them to say I'm a bad guy. So you're going to have to kill everybody. (laughs) That is the type of leadership that I feel like we see a lot. And it freaked me out. By the way, that's very Spartacus, right? I mean, like if you you don't tell us who it is, we're going to kill you all. We're just going to, that's it. You all go. Exactly. Very classic. Yeah. But it's so much about his own ego. You know, at least in Spartacus, he was like, I want to get information from you. Here is like, let's just let the history books not even say what happened. Kill them all for my own (laughs) reputation. Oh, it's so cold. (laughs) Maybe I'm like uh, already like okay with it. Like in the sense of like, yep, that's about right. That seems about right to me. (laughs) (laughs) And then folded into this, you have, you know, a kind of cute love story or love triangle story. Um, You have Brown Eyes is her her only real name. Well, can we talk about the names in this film? Because I think yeah. that that's actually really interesting. Like, I think he does this thing where he's trying to uh, make all the characters incredibly universal. They have these names that are more descriptive. It it sort of seems like the person who can't remember the names of characters in a film trying to describe the characters in a film. Oh, you know, brown <laughs> you know, eyes. Bra- brown eyes, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then um, the, the, the other one, you know, it's like, it's such a, I actually thought that was a really interesting way of, when you have a movie as big as this to simplify it. And I think that title card that you talked about is so great, but I also feel like that's uh, another attempt at him trying to make it uh, easy for the audience to follow. That's true. I mean, it's, yeah, he's like half a step more complicated than sunrise, right? Cause sunrise is like right. the man and the wife and the woman from the city. And here he like gives, a little bit of personality. Sometimes he's like the dear one, the friend, the boy. One. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the musketeer of the slums. Exactly. The mountain girl. I love the mountain girl. <laughs> I like girl. the mountain girl. But yeah, so Marjorie Wilson plays brown eyes and then she's in sort of this quiet love triangle that she doesn't, I think, seem to know is a love triangle. Like she has a boy who really loves her that she's in love with. She's about to try to get engaged and announce their en- engagement the day of the St. Bartholomew massacre. Meanwhile, she's being watched or stalked by one of de' Medici's soldiers who's like keeping an eye on her and winds up in a twist I thought was surprising, winds up murdering the girl that he likes. Not not that it's surprising that that even happens. That is a thing that definitely happens in the real world a lot. Right. But surprising that D.W. Griffith went there, that he didn't save the day, that he was like, you've all loved this girl. You've watched her fall in love. I'm murdering her now. And now that I'm murdering her. You're going to see her little sister get thrown into the street. You're going to watch her parents die. And her boyfriend's going to show up, hold her in his arms, go yell at the soldiers for killing her. And they're just going to gun him down like Bonnie and Clyde. You know, as you're saying this, Amy, I'm starting to think like thematically, these all mesh. They're all about the same because there's so many similarities between these stories. But maybe they're too close in a way because it's sort of I think it's hard to. It's almost hard to really parse them because the characters aren't expressing something or going through something that different you know it's i mean not to hold crash up as the idealized version or a movie like traffic or uh, or a babel like they're very different things that are going on that are interconnected where this feels like here's four examples of people going through the exact same thing with different specifics on top of it right like the repetition of of persecution like persecution doesn't end you know, kind of yeah. connected through that image he has of Lillian Gish as like the, with the the eternal motherhood, just sort of rocking a cradle. Like, here we go again. I've created this world and y'all are just going to kill each other again. This is what you do. And what's in her cradle is always changing, which I thought was a really interesting thing as well. Like um, at one point, 
is it just like a garden in there? Like, or it seemed, uh, it seemed like there are plants in there. And it's such an interesting idea of this eternal mother watching over it. And, and I guess being okay with the idea that you do your best and people are going to do their worst. Or I, there's something, there's something so comforting about that mother image. And I love that she's really taking herself as the star of the film when she literally has the least to do probably shot her out in a day. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it is interesting that like the mother, the eternal motherhood is kind of the closest thing. I think this movie has to an omniscient God figure. Right. And yeah. so it's interesting that he makes it a female God, like a woman who cares and supports and gives birth instead of like a more male punishing God. He's putting yes. forth this like, we keep trying. We're trying it again. We're trying to raise this planet right. And it's not working out. But that's a very maternal point of view. You know, it's a very, I hope it's not misogynistic or stereotypical, but I think that the idea like this forgiving mother earth, like I'm giving back and, you know, no matter, it's the giving tree. Like no matter how much you take from me, I will still be there for you and I'm still going to do it again. And maybe that's also D.W. Griffith saying, like, no matter how much you and many slings and arrows you'll throw at me, I will still I will still get up and I will still make my film. It's true. You know, I pulled actually a clip of Lillian Gish talking because you know, Lillian Gish as a silent film actress, you know, got very typecast by D.W. Griffith as this kind of like gentle feminine role. You know, she was always like mm-hmm. the damsel. She was being saved. There's a really amazing movie he makes where she's put on kind of a broken piece of ice, real ice, real river, and she's just floating down the river waiting to be saved. Yeah. She did. She kind of became his major leading lady after Mary Pickford quit and became her own major superstar on her own. Um, and so I think there is this vi- this vision of her as like this classic actress who was very wafery and light and delicate. I, I think she never she never married really and had kids. It was just kind of this eternal, lovely virgin figure. And... You know, towards like the um, towards like the 60s and 70s, she started uh, getting awards as like Lifetime Achievement Awards. And that was really the first time people got to hear, I think, her speak in her crazy sense of humor. So I pulled a clip of that just because I thought oh, it was interesting to contrast the actual Lily Gish with the character she played. Yeah. Um, so this is her uh, giving a speech to the AFI when she gets her Lifetime Achievement Award in 1984. And she just starts, she's being very deadpan here. And it's super funny, but she's talking about basically death. I was told by an old actor called Lestina that God looks after us. He said, have you ever heard of a boat accident, a train accident, a plane, or any with a great group of actors on board? We, I haven't. (laughs) There have been individual actors that have been killed. (laughs) They have never in a group. (laughs) Maybe he looks after us because we live in a world of uh, let's pretend. Maybe we're childlike because we want to please all the time. Whatever we do is to please the world. That might be uh, why we're not executed uh, in groups. (laughs) That whole speech, by the way, is super funny if you want to watch it. It's like five minutes long. And I had a hard time picking what to pick, but 
heard saying that's why actors haven't been executed in groups. It it just had me. <laughs> By the way, we have seen one of the actors in this French section before, and I did not recognize him at all, at all, at all, because the most recognizable thing about this actor is his voice. Um, I mentioned him at the top. His name is Eugene Pallet. We saw him before in um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He's the guy with the craziest voice. I'm just going to play a clip of him talking so you can recognize his voice. There's just one thing you can do. Go out there and say you're sick. Say that you don't know anything about this Barnes editorial, that you think it's outrageous, that you're not going to read this Vanzetti thing, that you think that Barnes is getting exactly what he deserves. Um, he looks like a frog in his older years in Hollywood, which matches the voice really well. But here, he is the romantic hero. I had no idea that Eugene Pallet, he's the guy who romances brown eyes, was ever hot. And this is him as an actor before he was known for his voice and he was known for his looks, which just changes my entire impression of who this man was in Hollywood. It's like a total 180 and I'm kind of losing my mind. And now we go to the fall of Babylon in 539 BC, um, which is, you know, uh, I think one of the most impressive sequences in this film. It, it is, I think visually absolutely stunning. And, and the, and the movie scope, I think is really seen here. Uh, you know, I feel like from the, the battle sequence that kind of, uh, gets right up into the second act is just absolutely massive. Uh, the extras are, there's so many of them. Uh, supposedly they paid extras $2 a day per head, uh, which was exceptionally generous at the time. Um, so basically, they were all paid about like 50 bucks a day um, and they were able to have their own bathrooms. So like D.W. Griffith is treating extras really nicely, which is something that is, you know, we got to give him a couple of props here. Um, and the and, you know, people said that the walls were life size. They were like 300 feet and 25 stories tall. Uh, however, I think that's now been debunked. And they said that they were just they were about 100 feet high. And uh, and that the material was so kind of light that even a light wind would just knock them over. But when you look at it, I couldn't help but think of a Hollywood and Highland complex because that's really what uh, we talked about this last week. What they, they oddly they base into like the front of that beautiful uh, theater in that area that represents L.A. as intolerance, which is kind of a funny idea that the birth of film or the birth of big budget blockbusters is there representing that? I don't think 90% of the people who walk through know that. Yeah, it's such a quirky choice. I mean, first of all, this set, this set that D.W. Griffith bought, like built for this movie, the actual location was not too far from, you know, an area I think a lot of people here in L.A. drive past all the time. It's where, it's around where the Vista Theater is today. Is where oh, it's the right original, down the block from my house. Yeah, it's right where the original um, Babylonian set was built. And, you know, he built this giant thing. He ran out of money. He couldn't tear it down. So it being left out there to kind of disintegrate on its own, which it did after a couple years, uh, became this strange landmark in the town, kind of like how we have Target that will never exist. You know, the Target yeah. that will never exist across from UCB. Yeah, it, it was that, but back in the day. In fact, wait, what? you know Kenneth Anger's book, Hollywood Babylon? Yes. Yeah, the Babylon he's talking about is this Babylon. It's this Babylon wow. set. Yeah, it, Karina did a great episode of that. If you want, on, you must remember this. Oh, I got to listen to that. You know, that set actually reminded me of this movie that I did called Year One, uh, which is a biblical epic that uh, comedy that Harold Ramis directed. And they built an entire town. And structurally, it looked 
the same. I was like, oh, wow, I, I bet you the art department watched this film and, 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 you know, and basically took stuff from it. And obviously there's only so many designs you can do there, but it had a lot of similarities to it. It brought me back to shooting that movie. And what happened to us in that film, it was such a massive, massive set. They're like, well, we're not going to tear this down. And it became a paintball field, uh, a Babylonian paintball field. So people in Shreveport, Louisiana could go, I don't know if it's still standing, but play paintball in this town. It was just massive. I mean, it had, you know, it was, it was absolutely one of the most stunning sets I've ever been on in my entire life. It was all real and, you know, and rooms and upstairs and downstairs. It was the most practical city I've ever been in. Um, that was built from scratch, not like on a back lot. But yeah, That's I love how amazing. these. I love how these things like, yeah, we'll just leave it, just leave it. We can't take it down. Yeah, and the you know the idea to repurpose intolerance or to kind of resurrect intolerance for for Los Angeles to like honor that whole architecture here. The person who had that idea was actually Ray Bradbury. Oh, really? Yeah, in the 1970s, Ray Bradbury he wrote this essay called "The Aesthetics of Lostness." Um, and then a few years later, Hollywood itself asked him if he was willing to help them improve their cultural core downtown. You know, this was not the best, most glamorous period for Hollywood. So they came to Bradbury and he was like, you know, this planning group is looking for ways to rebuild Hollywood. And I said, you know what? Somewhere in this city, you are going to have to rebuild the set from intolerance. He was like, that's wow. got to happen. And I hope at some time they will call it the Bradbury Pavilion, which they didn't. But they did take the idea and they did put it into the mall, which is incredible because you know, I think my favorite shot in the entire movie is the one that he invented almost this like elevator camera technique for. He built an elevator so he could pan up and down and get the scope of his gigantic Babylonian set in. And it's when they're having that Balkanal. You know, they think they've won the war. It's at the start of act two. They're like done. They're celebrating. And you see this giant pan of this entire city and these staircases these coordinated dancing girls doing this like slow dance down the staircase. And the fact that we have basically that staircase and that backdrop here, why, why are flash mobs not cool? Can we make a flash mob cool again (laughs) as soon as we're allowed to go outside? That's, I mean, it's unbelievable that that just is in our city, that we can do that. You know, what's so interesting as well in that sequence, you're talking about like the scope of it and, and the flash mobs, by the way, I'm looking at some pictures as we're talking uh, you can see the set of Babylon um, from people's houses. So there's like a street, a city street. Martin Turnbull uh, has these pictures up on his website. So basically, you're looking at like three residential houses, and then behind it, it's like a giant factory, but it's Babylon. It's just like this huge, huge structures. It's really uh, we'll, we'll post it up on uh, online because it's just funny to see how big it was. Um, but this sequence is very sexy in a way like i feel like i was like wow it almost feels like there's nudity i think there was nudity shot but then edited out and really violent like those two things took me by surprise because i'm not used to seeing that level of uh sex and violence in a film this old yeah it's incredibly erotic i mean i okay i love the babylonian sequence i'll just say it flat out like this babylonian sequence makes me love this movie like i am obsessed with the entire thing from start to finish i mean it's incredibly erotic. Like he keeps going to the harem. The girls do not seem entirely like they're dressed. You know, there is a lot of dancing. Yeah. There's a lot of camera footage of just flesh. Yes. You know, the way he puts the camera, it's like, look at the thigh. Look at this nice, big, meaty female thigh and appreciate it. You know, look at these flowers. He is lusting after the female body. 
I didn't know if it's lust as much as a, a kind of physical appreciation or I present this to you like an offering. Yeah. You know, in a way that they're, Hollywood's not going to be able to do that. They're not going to be allowed to do it in that kind of carnality very soon. And and it knocks me out. Like his 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 love of the women of the harem. One of the women in the harem, I've never been quite sure which one it is, but rumor is one of the girls in the harem is the girl who becomes um, Charlie Chaplin's next bride when she's a teenager, who he absolutely hates. Remember how he got a teenager yes, pregnant and then he yes. was mad at her and then he did, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, that girl is in this movie somewhere, allegedly. She's, she is referred to as like the favorite of the harem or the darling of the harem, but right. I'm never quite sure which one is the darling because there's a lot of girls who get a lot of close-ups. But yeah, I think she's 13 or 14 in this scene. Um, but it's, it's just unreal because, I mean, sure, you have these women. You have you know, the princess herself, this mm-hmm. like a stunning woman with this crazy wig who is completely in love with the prince, you know, with, with um, Prince, what is it? Is that Belshazzar? Yeah, Belshazzar, Belshazzar. yeah. Yeah, Belshazzar. You know, the, the, um, the princess beloved. And then you also have this incredible woman, you know, the mountain girl played by Count Constance Talmadge, this like tough, you know, strutting around the city. Like, I loved her. Hooligan girl. She's the coolest person. I, I mean, she might be the coolest girl we have on this list, if I can be honest. Absolutely. Who on this list is as cool as Constance Talmadge's mountain girl? I mean, I loved watching her, like the joy. And I think that that's one of the things about this film that really works is the performances do, like, even though the scope is so large, the performances really bring you in. I agree. I mean, some of them are theatrical. You know, I think people are still figuring out what screen acting is at this moment. You know, so mm. you have some of the people who are like, oh no, oh dear, dear me. But then you have somebody like Constance Talmadge, who she feels like she could walk right into a movie in 2020. Oh, the yeah. way she looks at the camera, her freshness, she's unbelievable. And, you know, I do make fun of like the strong female characters when it's like, I'm a strong female character who grabs a bow and protects my man. And yes, she does that here. And yes, it is actually legitimately awesome. And I'm not rolling my eyes at it. But her, some, my favorite moment of her is when her brother gets mad that um, that she's just like a disrupting force. And so he goes to a judge and the judge is like, oh, well, the solution is you sell her to be a wife to somebody. And so she goes and she's like at this bridal market to be sold into wife slavery. And she's just like, whatever. And she's eating a green onion and screaming at people for not wanting to buy her. And so I nobody know. does. It's so it's great. Unbelievable. I love I, I, that's like these two sequences that we're going to talk about. These last two are the two sequences that I wish we could have just lived in. These are the two that I felt the most connected to. Yeah, I think she is the coolest female character for sure on this list. And I'm so protective of her. I love her here. I want to I want like a I want like a Babylonian mountain woman franchise series. <laughs> She's just amazing. But yeah, so like, you know, her whole arc is that the prince shows up and the prince says to her, the prince of Babylon is like, you don't have to get married. Here's a little clay token. And this says it's your choice. It's for a movie in 1916 to have a little bit of an element of female choice, I think is also great. Oh, There's yeah. so much in this movie that I think is a modern stance that I, I agree with. And it's almost surprising to me that it's made by the same person who could have made Birth of a Nation, honestly. Because there's a lot in here that I'm like, yes, yes. You get a choice of whether or not you want to be married, man. When you think on this movie, I think these are the sequences these are the sets that you remember. I mean, it's, it's, um, how could you not? It's still impressive to this day. Yeah. I mean, they even worked in this set, this Babylonian set into LA Noir. You know, that, that, remember that video game where you can like drive around ancient LA? Oh yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a little bit in there. It's um, the jungle drum section where you like drive onto that set and you like chase a bunch of people and shoot them down. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it is an iconic sequence. But yet, you know, we have a lot of epics on this list or, you know, epics that have even been made like Ben-Hur. And what I think separates this Babylonian sequence is that I think there is a lot of interesting stuff happening underneath it. Because, you know, this is a fight about gods. You know, this is what is happening here in this fight. You know, the priests of Babylon... Um, feel betrayed because they have their own god, Bel, and they feel like Bel is being neglected because there's a new god named Ishtar. They're so offended that Ishtar is popular. And by the way, Ishtar is a real god. She was worshipped for about 4,000 years or so in um, in the ancient East, which makes her, you know, honestly have like a scope twice as long as Jesus. You know, she was worshipped twice as long as Jesus has been in the modern era. She's real. But yeah, these um, priests are so offended that their god is less cool that they convince the Persians to come and defeat their own city where they live. You know, they betray basically their own hometown in order to justify that their ego has been hurt. So this is once again, like a fight about religion, a fight about people's, you know, sensitivities are taking so much offense that they ended up destroying everything. But what I think is really interesting about this Babylonian sequence is that, you know, a couple of things. One, Babylon tends to be the shorthand for decadence, right? You know, like right. usually when Babylon shows up in movies, it's because these people have done something really bad and they need to be punished. You know, here are these partiers. They're the worst. Like they deserve that God is going to come and smite them. And honestly, I feel like if, you know, the Cecil B. DeMille who made, you know, movies like uh, the Ten Commandments and stuff would make a version of Babylon and be like, these guys, they get what's coming to them. Look at them. They're just drinking. Look at these harems. But D.W. Griffith is taking the side of the harems and of Babylon. And of the people that we usually think are so decadent, they deserve to be punished. Yeah. But then what's what's even more interesting about it, too, is that as this battle is going on, the Babylonians are calling to Ishtar. They're like, Ishtar, you have to help us. Ishtar, they're killing us. Ishtar, come on. And Ishtar does nothing. You know, like even the religion that this whole fight is being started over, that God isn't helping them. It's up to people like the mountain girl, you know, to be the heroes of this battle. Like religion is so useless. It's the source of all the destruction in this story and it does no good for anybody. I really didn't think about it like that. That's a really, that's a great point of view. I, I, I like that a lot. Do you think it was conscious? I do. I do think it was conscious, you know, that he just keeps cutting back and forth to this like image of Ishtar, you know, right up there, giant, larger than life, building this huge statue of her and there's sort of radiant beams around her at one time, but it doesn't really help. They still lose. They still get absolutely destroyed. And the mountain girl gets shot with an arrow. Yeah. And it's... it's. And then years later, Dustin ugh. Hoffman and uh, makes that movie with, um, you know, uh, Warren Beatty. And, you know, loses again. And, you know, so this is, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is kind of, yeah, a real cycle here. Yeah. But yeah, I kept thinking like in this movie, how much I really respected the choices he was making in the Babylon sequence. I feel like I'm all I'm all lit up like Ishtar right now talking about it. No, I love it. You know, think about it. You have this like poor village mountain girl who loves the prince, right? Yeah. And this isn't even a movie that's so patronizing that the prince knows about it. I think a patronizing version of this scene would be like, oh, when the prince realizes he can love a poor girl. No, that's not happening. The prince is in love with the princess and she legitimately loves him, too. And it's it, the the film doesn't have to try to raise the stakes or give the mountain girl everything she wants. She can love the prince. The prince can be legitimately in a great relationship. Nobody's the bad guy in this love triangle, which right. is unusual. I, I don't feel like that's a very ordinary plot set up at all. 
And then, and then, oh, there's that speech where like the princess gives all of the other girls of the harem that speech about how they have to straight up stab themselves in order to honor their prince. And oh, you have like the pigeons. Did you see those two little pigeons who are walking around carrying yes, yes. a chariot? Two little pigeons. And the princess is like, I love my prince so much. I'm going to put this rose in a chariot drawn by two pigeons or doves, I suppose. And the doves are going to walk it over and he's going to know that I love him. <laughs> I mean, it's whole sequence. I just, it's like, it makes me giddy. I feel like I'm high. I love the sequence. So no, much. I love it. You, you make me want to kind of go back and, and rewatch it. I think, yeah, it, like it definitely, I, like I said, I have no ill will to this movie. It just, uh, when I talk about it, I think I'm more excited about it than when I was watching it. That's fair, right? Yeah. That's happened to us a couple times, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's it really is impressive. It, you know, and I think, again, um, it's it's impressive in what it is up against, which we go into our our final segment, which is a very simple, almost like a um, a drama, like very, you know, apartment, small, present day, modern America at this time. And and to, to juxtapose you know, living in, I wouldn't say they're in a slum, maybe a tenement building, right? Is that where she's kind of at? Like next to these statues and people. And it's, it is, it, it, that is really kind of, uh, I think it makes these two sequences actually work really well hand in hand. Uh, that this is like, to me, this is my favorite segment. This one, uh, present day America. I, I really like this segment. Uh, cause this sequence to me feels so pure. It's like, you know what? This is what I want to say. I want to say that people stick their nose where it doesn't belong and they've created more drama and they're going to get people hurt. And this feels personal to me. This feels like the direct response. And I feel like in a way he's hiding other things, even though he says, you know, it's about intolerance and love, but this is the movie that he wants to make after birth of a nation, like get out of my business. You don't know what's going on. You don't have all the information. You're just dissatisfied with your own life and you're picking on me and it's going to get someone killed. Like, I mean, it's like, I, I love it. I love it. Uh, I knowing now the backstory, it's so transparent. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're right. Like the contrast you even see here between this grand scale, crazy Babylon and these small apartment interiors, I mean, that must be what seeing this movie itself was like for people. You know, yeah. most movies of this time looked like those small apartment interiors. You know, here's a girl. She's in trouble. Woe is her. She's running around her apartment. Maybe she goes outside to a garden. And then, boom, Babylon. So I love that even within this movie, you get a sense of how different this movie is from every other movie at the time. Yeah. It, yeah, it is real catty and and. Bitchy. I mean, he has that line. It's on one of the title cards. Like, when women cease to attract men, they often turn to reform. Yes, as a second that, choice. That was the the thing I was referencing in the beginning of the episode. This idea of like basically, you have this woman, the mountain girl, which I think is this beautiful, awesome idea of a character. And then you you juxtapose it with this other character, which is like basically just saying, you know, it's yeah, it's like for. Almost in a weird way, it undercuts how amazing that character is by having this point of view, too, just by saying, like, yeah, when women can't attract men, they kind of just become, you know, a pain in your ass. Yeah, he really he really seems to think, like, 
rich, elderly, bored women are gigantic hypocrites who make everybody else the problem. Right. It, and he makes a case for it. You know, here you have Miss um, Jenkins, you know, this rich woman who's related to a wealthy industrialist who's in, in D.W. Griffith's mind, he's modeling after Rockefeller. Yes. Because a couple years before this movie came out, Rockefeller um, tried to uh, pay his men less at one of his mines. They went and protested. And then he had, I think it was the National Guard come in and try to shoot his own working men. Whoa. And so there's a scene in this movie directly referencing that. But the chain of events where that D.W. Griffith sets up, his domino chain, is that it's because of women like Miss Griffith, you know, Griff, or Jenkins. Jenkins is like, we have to stop the men of this town who work at the mines or who work at the factory from going to these parties and drinking. Even though when we go to the party and they're drinking, it seems really fun. Yeah. You know, they're hanging out. Nobody's that drunk. They're drinking beer. So it's not a big deal. A little bit of beer, a little bit of wine. It's a party. And they're like, we can't have this. Right. So because they can't let the men drink, then she's like, we're closing down the bars. But all of our money that we spent building this gigantic office that all of us women work in as we try to ruin fund for everybody else, our office is so expensive that my brother has to pay his men less. And because his brother has to pay his men less, they riot. And because they riot and protest, then they get shot. And then all the survivors move to the city and then all hell breaks loose. And meanwhile, people are drinking worse stuff because beer was easy and cheap. And now they have to make like bootleg whiskey. So it's even more unhealthy. <laughs> yes, you're totally it, right. It's yeah. a complicated plot thread, but I, I really, he's passionate about it. You feel it, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's this, like I said, it's the crux of the film and it, I don't disagree with it either. Like, you know, I don't, I don't feel like it's like, um, I, I don't feel like what he's saying is exactly wrong. I think that a lot of times people do stick their nose into situations and uh, get caught up in, uh, in things that they shouldn't get involved in because they want to make something that's their business, their business. You know, it, that is, I mean, it's, it's gossiping. It's, it's all that sort of cattiness that we all have. Uh, I think that his point of view from it is more about, you know, your film is racist. And he's like, oh, what do you know? You're just kind of, you're a liberal white person who got up in my shit, you know, because that's what we heard from the beginning. The theater was the perfect theater. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know. There's This is a very simple melodrama. It it works out kind of perfectly. It has comedy in it. It, you know, it has a great ending, the hanging sequence. It's it. There's so much, uh, there's so much fun in this. I mean, it's a very simple, simply done sequence. And in a weird way, I wonder if having the albatross around his neck that Birth of a Nation was the most expensive film ever made before this, he couldn't just make this because this is not an expensive film. It, it seems so simple like that he had to basically hide it under the Babylon sequence, which is un unnervingly giant. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's really interesting. It's almost yeah, like that is a really interesting point. Yeah, because you're right. This is the problem of the follow up film, right? Yeah, it's exactly. It's like he made four films, all with the same theme. So it's like a director going, like, let me make one. Like, what am I feeling? I'm feeling this, and that's what I'm passionate about. I'm going to make this, but I also feel like there's a thing of like, I'm going to make a bigger, and uh, and I really want to drive home my point. Like, you can't miss it now. You can't miss how I feel. Um, you know, I don't know. 
It's it's yeah, it's true. And I feel like the Babylonian sequence and the modern day sequence are the furthest apart in terms of theme. Yes. So you can kind of get in being like, I got to put these two little ones in here just to try to connect the dots. Because I can't imagine just having a movie with only Babylon in the modern stuff. Because then you'd be like, okay, I, I do kind of get it. But it's yeah. the middle ones that connect it more. I totally agree. Yeah. By the way, the lead actress here, Mae Marsh, um, she was one of his favorite actresses. She was, I mean, most of the people in here were also in Birth of a Nation. He's kind of bringing back his like stars from the last film. But there's a fun fact about Mae Marsh. Um, she was born in Madrid, New Mexico. Okay. I bring that up because Madrid, New Mexico is the place where wild hogs go and they have that burger that I keep talking about. Oh, I love that wild hogs has now come up <laughs> twice. Oh, and also we have seen Mae Marsh before. It was real little and she didn't get to talk much. But basically what happens is, you know, her career has kind of like a rise and a fall. She's in the two biggest movies, um, basically, of like the silent era. But by the time um, the 30s and the 40s come around, she's really struggling to get work. So people who loved her in films like this tried to find ways to put her into movies to give her a tiny job. One of them was John Ford. And so John Ford gives her a very tiny role in Grapes of Wrath. So we have seen Mae Marsh in Grapes of Wrath. She's um, right at the beginning of the film. Remember how like at the beginning when they're still in Oklahoma, there's that guy who's like, well, who do we shoot? We can't shoot the bank. Who do we shoot? Who am I supposed to shoot? She's that guy's wife. And she's just standing wow. quietly in the background. Wow. I love that. I didn't know that at all. This is great. This movie is, uh, is really like a Pandora's box of uh, a lot of fun little facts. And now I'm wondering, because I know that this movie is not uh, obviously a success. But it is a success in so many ways. I, I, I kind of wonder, why didn't it connect with people? I mean, you know, like, do you have any instinct on that? I do a little bit. I mean, I think one of the reasons is because this movie was really promoting peace in a lot of ways. I mean, this is an anti-war movie. You know, yeah. every time a head of state comes out with guns and is like, we're going to attack these people. He's like, no, you know, this is a movie that really makes a big for how if we could just have love on this earth and more understanding and less right. hypocrisy, we could have peace. And it comes out right at the start of World War One. You know, I don't think audiences wanted to hear a pacifist message. They wanted to hear like Yankee Doodle Dandy. We're going to go out there. We're going to kick some ass. And right. so I think this movie was at a step, to be honest. Interesting. I mean, I think that's what makes a lot of this film still feel really modern to mm -hmm. me. Yeah, You know, I mean, it is the most old-fashioned movie that we have on this list. It's the oldest movie. It's the oldest on movie the on the list, yeah. And yet, when he ends the modern-day sequence by saying, you know, instead of prison walls, we need to bloom flowery fields, when he makes this argument that's pro-environment and against mass incarceration, that's what I want from a president. You know, that's what I want today. I still want that. I want that as much as he did. Yeah. And we still don't have it, you know, speaking to the point of, like, America not getting better. But but he he... He's arguing for something that I think is still absolutely relevant. So now what are reviewers saying when this comes out? Well, I think that they are also having that kind of battle with what do you do with a guy like D.W. Griffith? What do you do with this guy who comes in? I mean, who are the directors now that we have? We, I guess we don't have to name names. But we have those directors who are like, you're a genius and that makes me kind of hate you and go after you. Like, I expect stuff from this film that I can never be satisfied on. Almost the way that I feel about a Coen Brothers film. You know, it takes me a minute to like a Coen Brothers film because I expect so much from it every time I sit down or like right. a Tarantino film. So people did not go easy on him. They, you know, this is the guy who made Birth of a Nation. 
So the review I pulled right now, I've pulled two. The first one is from the New York Times, who the same year that they reviewed Intolerance, they um, referred to Birth of a Nation as having, quote, poisonous, stupid, and contentably malicious race prejudice. Um, they reviewed Intolerance, and they said this about it. They called it, quote, unprecedented and indescribable splendor of pageantry is combined with grotesque incoherence of design and utter fatuity of thought to make the long-awaited new Griffith picture an extraordinary mixture of good and bad, of wonderful and bad. And they call it a severe disappointment because they say Griffith is the one most likely to give us the great motion picture of this generation. And they essentially say that Griffith is kind of like um, if somebody dropped a piano on an island. He is a genius, but there is no great composition for him to play. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I Yeah, I like that. I like that. I mean, I like that. I mean, you may disagree with it. Yeah, I mean, I really like this movie. I think I really <laughs> you like referred to it. Gonna say you you referred to this movie as a banger. It is a banger, man. It is. That, it is a banger. Yeah. That chase scene at the end is a banger. That Babylonian battle is a banger. Everything I in love- the mountain girl, straight up banger. Straight I up mean, banger. The whole thing about like three different lines and which one is the executioner gonna cut to kill the person. I mean, the suspense of that. This movie has a lot of straight banging in it. Uh, but I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the banging nature of this movie. <laughs> but then I'll, I'll um, say a quote um, from Photoplay from their review because it says something I think is incredibly telling. Um, they say, in the stupendous chaos of history and romance, the lack of a virile musical score is the chief tragedy. Proper melody would have bound the far provinces of this loose empire of mighty imaginating into a strong central kingdom. I wish our Mr. Griffith had worked out a whole evening of his great Babylonian story. We wish to follow undisturbed the adventures of a single set of characters. Verily, when the game is hearts, two is company and the lovers of four ages, an awful crowd. If I may predict, he will never again tell a story in this manner, nor will anyone else. Wow. And the truth is, yeah, no one. I don't think this film has been equaled, honestly, in terms Uh, of human grand scale. And I think that uh, people try. This is a hard movie to make. And people, it's not, you know, you know, you you could say there are, you know, there are movies with multiple plot lines, like a Quentin Tarantino Pulp Fiction, you know, where it's like, we're all, we're popping around, but not on this level. I mean, and I get, of course, like Crash is telling a story about racism through different perspectives, but it's not on the scale. It's always simpler. It's always much simpler. Um, and I do believe this movie belongs on this list. I mean, I'm jumping to my conclusion before we even talk about the Simpsons. Uh, but I do believe this movie belongs on this list. This movie is, and we talk about a lot of times in this, and I think we have to address this too, complicated filmmakers, right? We've talked about complicated filmmakers when we talk about Chinatown, we've talked about complicated filmmakers when we talk about Woody Allen, uh, Charlie Chaplin, a lot. He is a complicated filmmaker. He, uh, you know, made arguably, you know, the movie that is, synonymous with racism you know it, it is it's undeniable you know uh that he has these issues um but this film is also it's not birth of a nation which is good uh it's a different film uh which i don't think has any real racist themes to it i think it, it seems to be almost like he's avoided that very uh, smartly um so you know i yeah so in that you know it's I hate to come on. I don't want to be like, well, but this one's okay. So that's okay. You know, I don't like, where do you fall on the person, the man, the the myth, the legend, all that sort of stuff? 
Yeah, I mean, I think he was a bit of a dick. Like, he was always giving Mary Pickford grief for, um, he always thought she was too chubby. He called her the little dumpling. I mean, he was not the nicest guy. What I really came away with when I was thinking about it for this um, episode is, I'm astounded that my film class even bothers with the debate about Birth of a Nation at this point. You know, like- I agree with that. Like, that statement, I agree with 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's any conversation anymore about Birth of a Nation being worthwhile to be put on this list in terms of even its technical scale. I feel like people have tried to point to the technics and saying we have to at least respect the artistry and what it created in a visual language. But honestly, that argument is triple for Intolerance. Intolerance is a better film. It is a more beautiful film. It is a more astounding film. It is not a film that restarted the Klan. It is. I feel like I just want to even... We can't erase Birth of a Nation because I think we need to reconcile and fight that film, you know, forever. But yeah. in terms of what film deserves to be remembered, I can't point to another silent epic from our first decade of real proper Hollywood filmmaking that is it compares to this. There's nothing that compares to this. And, you know, for our earliest first film on the list, this is the film, you know, this film's absolutely jaw dropping. I, I totally agree with you, uh, you know, and I, and like, and that's the thing. It's like, no one will ever make a film like this and people need to see this film. And I agree with you that it should be taught in film school. I feel like we should just eliminate birth of a nation. I think it's important to acknowledge birth of a nation and the ideas of how, uh, you know, obviously how quickly, you know, propaganda like that, or like Lenny Riefenstahl, like these things are dangerous to society and culture but let's get into the nitty-gritty of like this how was this movie made uh you know how was this accomplished and and why won't it be accomplished again i i think we can kind of make birth of a nation a footnote and make this film uh something to be studied but only if there's a simpsons is there a simpsons well no I mean, it's going to be hard. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> no, there is not a Simpsons. So in lieu of a proper Simpsons, I pulled an episode of The Simpsons from Radioactive Man. This is the episode okay. where um, Milhouse like is cast clever. to play. Yeah, it's, he's cast to play Fallout Boy in a movie about Radioactive Man. Um, he bails. And so they talk about what they're going to do now. And it's a little bit of a Simpsons ode to editing, which I think this film just really changes the language of forevermore. All right, I'm excited to watch. Let's see. Thanks to modern editing techniques, we can use existing footage to complete the film without Millhouse. <laughs> Watch. Looks like we're in trouble, Fallout Boy. Jiminy Jellicers, radioactive man. We'll have to fight our way out. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> Seamless, huh? You're fired. And with good cause. Your picks are always so creative. I love that you were able to pull that one out of your ass. That's a I, I, I buy it. I pulled it out of heaven. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, so I think we both agree it belongs on the list. I think that um, you know D.W. Griffith is a complicated person, and this film is incredibly unique. Um, and uh, it's been a pleasure kind of chatting with you about it because I feel like um, the conversation of this film really engage me like we're finding that i'm finding that a lot you know uh and this is something i'm so happy that i saw so for all of you that were kind of put off by the two hours and 47 time or just kind of got lost in the middle of it and or had a hard time i would say try to make it through because 
especially that last half hour is is really really exciting um i wholeheartedly agree yeah and now amy we're getting to your favorite movie it's a scorsese film about three good fellas uh who happen to be not so good um amy it's time for us to talk good fellas oh that's God. right that oh, is God, here right we go. Um, uh, I don't know. Can I just all say anybody who disagrees with me is intolerant? All right. So let me tell you something before we even start this conversation, because I don't want to skew next week's episode. But when you were first doing the canon, uh, one of the first episodes I listened to because I was helping put together Wolf Pop at that time was uh, you doing Goodfellas. Um, and I it was a movie I always loved. Um, and listening to your points of view, you literally. I don't know where I'm going to fall next week, but you you poked holes in something that I thought was unpokeable. Uh, and that's really when I just was like this. Uh, Amy's got the goods, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> really, you really got me uh, spun up in a good way on that thing. I was like, wait a second. She's totally right. So I'm excited to have this debate. I'm sorry to engage you about it again. I would just should do, I should just tell people to listen to the canon. But I, I want to see what my take is going to be because I haven't watched it in, in quite some time. Um, let's and, do it. And I'll just say up front, I have the goal of getting Goodfellas off this AFI list. So. Oh, wow. All right. So that's there we the go. Goal. <laughs> um, and you know, as we are kind of coming down to the bottom of the list, why don't we ask you, what's the movie that you would kick off the list? Uh, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about it, but what's a personal favorite that you would kick off the list? Give us a call at 747-666-5824. We know what Amy's is, but what's yours? Seven four seven six 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 five eight four. I got a few, man. I can. I know. Multitude. But if my but if you could cloud. only kick off one, if you this is your number one, your number one, if you could only have one moment to really affect change, this is it. But think hard. That would be your <laughs> that would be your choice. Um, all right. Uh, we will see you next week for good fellas. Mm-hmm.